Well, thank you, choir and orchestra and band. You guys are awesome. Y'all give it up for them one more time. Y'all hit on back to your seats. Hey, you got a Bible with you this morning. Say amen. And I uh, invite you to open it with me to Luke's Gospel this morning. And uh, missed you guys last week. We were in Brazil starting a new pastor training school. Had a great, great time there. I know that a lot of people were praying for us, and we appreciate you doing that. And uh, many of you started praying whenever you found out that sitting next to me uh, was a kitty cat on the plane. And uh, I appreciate your prayers because I am like deathly allergic to cats. And uh, had I stayed there the whole time, I would have been licking my palms by the time I was in Brazil. And so uh, anyway, y'all's prayers must have worked because I went and sat in a different seat and uh, closed my eyes and acted like I was asleep. And then next time I opened the up, somebody else was sitting in my seat. So the Lord was good, and uh, I didn't have to be next to that kitty cat. I also got sick one day. Appreciate you praying that day as well. Everybody acts like I was dying. I was just, you know, not feeling that good one day. But appreciate you praying. Sure do. And um, also, last Sunday, man, I hated missing you guys, but I heard great reviews of how God really worked in the service. And Jason, we appreciate you sharing the word last Sunday and excited about what God has in store in the days ahead uh, through that ministry. So you got a Bible there. I want to talk to you. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. So stand with me in honor of God's word. Luke 9, verse 37. The Bible says, On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd had met with them. And you might remember, when they were on the mountain, they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus. Awesome day. So they're headed back down the mountain. Verse 38, A man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And his spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And then notice verse 41, Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Then note verse 45. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Let's pray together. Father, we have uh, come to hear from heaven, so we pray in Jesus' name that you speak clearly. God, I also ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would use this message uh, to shape us into the disciples that you would have us to be, that we might live in such a way that would honor you and that would glorify you. And Father, we pray, just as Moses did in the Old Testament, that you would show us your glory. Father, thank you that you have reserved your glory for the New Testament church during these days. And I pray in the name of Jesus, we do nothing whatsoever to mess that up. God, we want to experience you. We want to walk with you as a fellowship, as a community. And we want to know that your presence is with us. And so, God, this morning, uh, invade the territory. Speak to every single heart. Those who are far from you, draw them near. Those who are near to you, continue to light them on fire for your name's sake. And, God, we give you this time. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said... Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I began to talk to you on the idea of the glory of the Lord. You know, our heart must be to experience the glory of God. Our prayer must be that God would show us his glory. 
God's glory among his people is an undeniable and unmistakable outpouring of his presence in our midst. The glory of God is reserved for the New Testament church. And when the glory of God manifests itself in the context of a fellowship, his people, that is God's people, they will settle for nothing less. And when the glory of God manifests itself in the context of a New Testament church, God's voice speaks directly to the individual's hearts. Now, while God's glory can be experienced among God's people, this morning we discover a very sobering fact from our text of Scripture. You see, as a fellowship, we can gather together as a congregation and not experience the power of God in our midst. That is, we can just come in here and sing a few songs. Uh, we can listen to some talking. We can offer up some very shallow prayers and actually not experience Almighty God, the Lord of glory. You know, Jesus spoke of the religious in his day, quoting the prophet Isaiah, in which he said, and I quote, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain, that is in emptiness, in shallowness, they do worship me. Teaching, however, not the word of God, but as doctrines, the precepts of man. See, what must be is a fellowship uh, and individuals who go beyond lip service to the Lord God. Our hearts must beat passionately for the Son of God, and we must desire more than anything that we would experience God together as a local fellowship. You know, as I studied this text uh, that we're looking at this morning, uh, I am struck by the fact that Jesus wants you and I to actually experience his power at work among us. Jesus' desire for his body, the church, is to experience a single-hearted devotion toward him. And he made a promise concerning the church in the New Testament. And the promise was that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. In fact, the New Testament church had unbelievers who were giving testimony of them in Acts uh, chapter 2, where the Bible says that they were saying this, and I quote, they are turning the world upside down. Speaking about the New Testament church. You know, too often, I sense the local church is losing ground to the enemy instead of gaining ground on the enemy. Instead of turning the world upside down, uh, many church gatherings look no different than any other social event, uh, which makes me begin to question, why is that? I mean, why is it that some church services are like a PTA meeting? Uh, God really was not there. God really may have been spoken of, but he was not worshipped. Uh, the people's lips indeed jabbered on about Jesus, but their hearts were far from him. Why is it that many churches are dead? If we are promised the glory of God to work in our midst, and if we're promised that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us as a church, and if we are mobilized by Almighty God to impact a dark and dying culture, why are we not blown away every single time we get together to worship the Lord of glory? Why is it that you and I can come to church and we can leave church and there be no change whatsoever in our life? You know, I read a book one time on worship by Ronnie Floyd, and he had a statement in that book that has really uh, shattered me and encouraged me all at the same time. He says, if you have not been changed in a worship service, you have not worshipped in that service. So if you can come in here and you can leave and not experience some sort of change, then you've not encountered the living God. Uh, the sad reality about many churches is that they wouldn't know God if they met him in a 40-acre field. They have no concept of who the Lord of glory genuinely is. But this morning, I want us to be encouraged and uh, be challenged 
that we as a fellowship here at Concord Baptist Church might be, listen, overwhelmed by the glory of God working among us. That we might be shocked to see how marvelous and how miraculous the Lord will work in the context of this body of believers. See, I'm a firm believer that God, by His grace, can cause salvation to spring up from the ground. That those individuals that you thought were so far from God that could never know God, that they were just too far gone. God has a unique ability to reach down to the very bottom of what we might call the barrel and redeem people for eternity. And there are marriages that sometimes we look at and we say there's no hope. Listen, there is hope when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ and meet with him. God restores those marriages, those children who are wayward. People are like, well, we're just going to give up on them, not even pray for them. Man, please, you don't know the power of God. If they will meet with God, you might be shocked to see how the Lord will change the direction of their hearts and lives and radically use them in the days ahead. I don't want to come to church and us not experience the living Lord that we preach of and that we sing about. I do not desire for us to come to church and just blab our faces off about Jesus, but not actually interact with Jesus, not actually meet with him. Listen, the Bible teaches the Lord himself desires to be in the context of a worship service. God himself desires to display his miraculous, almighty power in the midst of a New Testament church. And so you and I must be challenged that we would seek that with all of our hearts. That we would not be some faithless group of people who aren't passionately, genuinely, authentically worshiping the Son of God, who is, by the way, the only Redeemer for humanity. So we've got to come together, man. We've got so much trash going on in the world today, do we not? I don't mean to get off on what's happening in the news, but it's kind of difficult, ain't it? You've got so many protests going on. So many people who are shouting against America and Israel. So many people who are shouting against the Christian God. Which, by the way, I always find it funny when they uh, characterize the Lord as the Christian God. Because there is only one God. So they should just say, the God. But that's uh, in their brain, not so much. Matter of fact, they're worshiping a God that is a figment of their own imagination. Uh, Allah does not exist. Uh, there is one true and living God. And if the church of Jesus Christ, are y'all listening, say yes? If the church of Jesus Christ does not see the Lord Jesus as they worship, then we are wasting our time, man. We've got to come together. We've got to worship the Lord. So this morning, I want to encourage our fellowship, Concord, to make sure we're not shackling the glory of God by disregarding the power of the Lord. So with that in mind, let me just note a couple of things from this text of Scripture, a couple of things the Lord's put on me. And I always like the fact that the Lord preaches the message to me before I preach it to y'all. So a lot of things kind of convicted the fire out of me. So let me share some of those things with you. First principle I want to give you this morning concerning this text is we do not want Jesus to lament over his fellowship at Concord. That is is we do not want Jesus to mourn over his fellowship at Concord. Notice Jesus' words in Luke 9 and 41. The Bible says, Jesus answered and said, speaking to his disciples, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Now the idea of putting up with you speaks of the fact that Jesus was mourning over what he had witnessed in the life of his own disciples. The idea here is that Jesus was saying, how long will I have to be patient with you? 
How long will I have to endure you? That is a mighty strong rebuke from the Son of God. Uh, would you not agree? The Lord Jesus is really kind of getting in their face here. But why is he doing that? Why such a strong statement from Jesus? Well, notice the scene again in verse 37. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only boy. And a spirit seized him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. So here we have a broken-hearted man coming to Jesus. His son, the text describes as his only son, is possessed by an evil spirit. Now somebody's like, preacher, you believe in demon possession? Yes, I do, because it's in the Bible. Y'all all right? And so it's there, so we believe that and uh, have witnessed that myself. But here we have this text where this young boy is possessed by an evil spirit. And you can see this man, can't you? He's reaching out to Jesus in desperation with tears streaming down his face. He's begging and pleading and repeatedly asking for Jesus to help him. And the scripture indicates that this evil spirit takes hold of his son unexpectedly and the boy begins to cry out. So the boy shouts. He shrieks in such a manner that his father is fully aware of the fact that his son is influenced by something unnatural. Something dark, something unholy, something that does not belong. He goes on to explain to Jesus that when the evil spirit takes hold of him, he begins to convulse. So imagine for a moment the father looking at his son being thrown to the dirt floor of their home. The son is rocking back and forth violently, knocking over the lantern of their house, leaving only the dim light of the moon peering in through the cracks of their wooden door. And after a time, the evil spirit finally leaves him, but he does not go peacefully. In fact, as the boy foams at the mouth, the evil spirit leaves mauling him. Uh, literally, that means to crush and to shatter. So this boy, after being convulsed upon the floor, is now being crushed and shattered as the evil spirit leaves. So you picture the father running to embrace his son. He's kneeling down beside him. He picks up the lifeless and shattered body of his only boy with tears in his eyes, wiping the sweat from his son's brow. He rocks him now back and forth. Uh, still rocked himself by a lack of understanding of what's happening to his son. And then after putting his son to bed, I can imagine the father, the one who can usually fix anything, he stands over in the corner absolutely confused. You can see him there as tears stream down the side of his cheek. And as he has no clue how to help his son, fear attacks his heart as he realizes his inability in this desperate situation. He now is begging the Lord Jesus for help. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that he came up and he shouted, Teacher! So he's coming and he is hollering at the Lord Jesus Christ. And just a quick little side note for everybody here this morning. You may be hearing... You have a child who has wavered. Uh, they've walked away from the Lord. Maybe they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe they've experienced something in their life. And you remember that time when you first shouted out to God, but your shout has begun to dampen. I want to encourage you, based upon this text, that if you were shouting to the Lord, or if you have not yet shouted to the Lord, that you get to shouting. You pray, you cry out to God on behalf of your children. You ask the Lord God himself to work in the lives of your children, that they might be either redeemed or they might be restored. So there's a challenge here for every single parent to make sure we're praying on behalf of our children, lifting them up to the Lord. And that's what this man is doing. He's shouting at Jesus. But we know also that the man didn't just go to Jesus, but he actually went to the disciples first. In fact, uh, the other nine disciples who were not privileged to experience the glory of God in Christ on the mountain had seen this father before. Uh, notice verse 40. 
the man says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. So you can kind of see him there, maybe he points at all the nine disciples. He's like, I'm coming to you because I asked these guys, and they couldn't do anything. Please don't allow that short statement, by the way, to run in one ear and out the other. The father said to Jesus, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And some people are like, well, there's no way these disciples could have cast out this demon. If that's your take, you'd be completely wrong in that assertion. As a matter of fact, the disciples were given gifts for this kind of ministry. Listen to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. The Bible says, Jesus summoned the 12 disciples and gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So these gifts were given to the disciples. They're often called miraculous gifts. They were given to the disciples and the apostles of the New Testament. They were gifts to authenticate the power of God upon their lives as well as to authenticate their inclusion in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So they had the gift to cast out the demons. However, the Bible says that in this instance, they could not cast out this devil. Which begs the question, what was their problem? Uh, why couldn't they cast out this devil? Well, notice Jesus' words again in Luke 9 and 41. You got it there? Say yes, look at your Bible. Luke 9 and 41. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Stop there for a moment. What is it that drove Jesus to mourn or lament over his disciples in this text? It was, mark it down, two words, unbelief and perversion. Now, the word unbelief literally means a lack of trust. Their unbelievable lack of faith in the power of God. Jesus was saying of the disciples, you are a faithless people. But then he goes on and calls them perverted, which I think is a pretty strong term. You agree? So there's some perversion here. That word means to be crooked. It means to be twisted, misled, and deformed. So Jesus lamented over his disciples because they were misled and they were crooked. And please do not miss this this morning. Listen closely. They, are y'all listening? Are y'all listening? They were not experiencing the great power of God at work in their midst because of their lack of faith and their misguided hearts. It's interesting that many churches don't have the opportunity to see the glory of God working powerfully in their midst. I'm of the opinion uh, concerning this text that the reason we don't experience more of the miraculous power of Almighty God in our worship is because of our lack of faith and our perverted hearts. So Jesus was like, bring your son to me. Bring him here. Uh, verse 42, while he was still approaching uh, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. So the demon uh, in this text gave one last throwdown of the boy, but he was stopped dead on his tracks by the Son of God. The Bible says Jesus rebuked the evil spirit. That is, he commanded the devil to leave. Uh, because Jesus has absolute authority over demonic spirits, the demon left, and then Jesus did for the boy what his father uh, nor the disciples could do. The Bible says he healed him. That is, he renewed him. And then he gave him back to his father. Imagine for just a moment the appreciation in the eyes of his father and the joy which flooded his heart as he embraced his renewed son. Uh, what Jesus did, the disciples could have, uh, have done, but they did not because of the fact that they were faithless and they were led astray. Their unbelief caused Jesus to lament over them. Now, I'm studying this text as I often do whenever I uh, begin to get prepared to preach. I'm working on a text of Scripture, and 
uh, writing some things down, jotting them down on a legal pad. Uh, and as I do that, often God begins to uh, speak to my heart uh, concerning things in my own life. And so I remember writing down the question, and I wrote it in my notes here. Uh, as I was studying, I was like, well, Lord... Um, Jesus, I'll tell you what, I do not, I mean, I am praying that you would not look upon my life and lament or mourn over me because of my unbelief or because of my crooked thought patterns. And so as I began to pray that and really seek the Lord, all of a sudden then my, my prayer changes. Now I'm praying for the church. Uh, that's what uh, pastors do. They begin to think about the flock that God has uh, given them charge uh, with. And so I begin to pray for you, and I'm like, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would not ever look down upon concord and weep at our unbelief. And if we're like the disciples in Luke chapter 9, we run the risk of shackling the work of God in our midst. We will cease to experience the glory of God. His presence manifest among us if we come in here with faithless hearts and misguided, perverted minds. But the Lord so desires to show up in our midst. He is looking for that church that has a heart that is steadfastly devoted toward Him. So that He can show up and show Himself to be strong in their midst. God so desires to do work among us. Let us not be people who are faithless. And it's amazing. I mean, it's like God's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to. Y'all agree with that? But what is crazy, as I study the, uh, the Bible, are y'all listening? I'm studying too. I'm still learning. But as I study the Bible, I'm like, you know what is, is wild to me is that uh, the Lord works uh, where people are having faith in him. So somehow or another, our faith, our trust in the Lord uh, creates a scenario where God himself works mightily. But then as you study the New Testament, you find that where there's a lack of faith, the people miss out on the glorious work of God. In fact, Jesus went into his own hometown, Nazareth. And the Bible declares there concerning Jesus that he could do very few miracles there because, listen, because of their unbelief. Which always makes me think what it would be like for Jesus if he comes to church at Concord and he walks in. He's like, man, I... I can't do many miracles here because there's so much unbelief in the pews. So much unbelief in the pulpit. What a stinging indictment to think that because we are faithless, God will choose not to show up and work mightily. Are y'all listening? But as we place our faith in Him, our trust in Him, and we are really devoted to Him, God's like, I'm going to that church. I'm going to preach whether y'all want me to or not. That's why there's a lot of dead churches. Because there's faithless men behind the pulpit. There are faithless people in the pew. And they all get together and, man, they talk about Jesus. They sing about Jesus. But nothing. It's because they're giving lip service. They got it going on, man. They're following their little bulletin. It's like God didn't come. God wasn't in that building. We didn't meet with the Lord. But what is amazing to me, are y'all listening now? I'm just kind of uh, ranting here. But what's amazing to me is that people continue to go weekend after weekend after weekend and not experience God. It's like, why the, I, I don't want to do that, man. 
Are y'all out there? Why would you want to do that? It's like, what, what's the point? You know what I'm saying? It's like, we go, yeah, we went to church today. Did God do anything? I don't even know. What? What'd you go for, man? So, you know, I'm studying this passage of Scripture, and there's uh, two other gospel um, narratives on this text as well. Uh, in Matthew chapter 17, as well as Mark chapter 9, we read about the same scenario. So I'm, you know, in my study, I'm putting all these things together, putting them kind of on the, the big picture to see every single thing that's kind of happening on this particular scene. And then I just am jotting down questions. And uh, one question that I jotted down is, what would cause Jesus to mourn over Concord? That's a pretty good question. You agree? So what is it that would cause Jesus to mourn or lament over Concord? A couple of things I'm jotting down based upon the study. Uh, one is Jesus will mourn over us if we're trying to exercise God-given gifts without trusting in the Lord. See, like the disciples of Jesus' day, we've been given gifts to employ in the body of Jesus Christ. But these disciples did not experience the power of God as they sought to exercise their gifts because they were exercising them without trusting in God. And so they were faithless, little faith. You know, Paul speaks in the book of Romans about the fact that every believer does indeed have a gift. Romans 12, 6 through 8, the Bible says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. If he teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, do so with liberality. He who leads, do so with diligence. He who shows mercy, do so with cheerfulness. So God has given every believer a spiritual gift. And Warren Wiersbe has stated, and I quote, spiritual gifts are tools to build the body of Christ. Now, if you're a born-again believer who follows the Lord Jesus, you have been given a spiritual tool to help build up this fellowship here at Concord. The disciples in our passage of Scripture, had been given gifts to cast out demons. However, in Matthew's gospel, they wondered why they couldn't help this boy possessed by a demon. And in Matthew 17 and 19, the Bible says they came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he answered and said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So Jesus speaks directly about their faith. It's like the reason you couldn't do it is because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't trust God enough. And faith was small. Their faith was eaten up by unbelief. And now taking into account this idea of exercising God-given gifts without trusting the Lord, I began to wonder and even ask myself and jotted down the question, how do I know if I'm doing this? And that became kind of a prayer, Lord. How do I know if I'm really exercising a gift without trusting in you? How do I know that? A few things that I note here. I know I'm not trusting God if I'm lazy with my God-given gift. So let's get, say that God has gifted you to teach his word. You've got a class to teach, but you're not seeing life change occur in your class. There's no power in your gift. There's no sense of God's presence with you as you teach. This could be due to the fact that you are lazy with your gift, that you're not studying and preparing. You're not wrestling with the text. You are presenting and allowing it to change you first. And so in laziness, you half-heartedly at best seek to teach the word of God, but there is no power. And I remember growing up sitting in church and saw a man on the side who wasn't listening to the preaching, but what he was doing was preparing his Sunday school lesson to teach the next hour. 
I'm like, that dude's lazy. He waited till church while the preacher was preaching, and then he's like, oh, I better study for my lesson. Got to teach. Jesus laments over laziness. Uh, read the book of Proverbs. It is amazing how often they speak about a man being lazy. It talks about as a man turns over uh, on his bed, uh, it looks like a door turning on its hinges. He's so lazy. God does not show up, send his glory down for those who are lazy with their spiritual gift. And man, that is a strong uh, statement to every single one of us who are believers. So, you know, I also know I'm not trusting God if I'm fearful of using my God-given gift. So the person is like this. They're like, I'm so anxious, man. I'm so nervous. I don't want to hurt anybody's feeling. I don't want to disappoint someone. I don't even think I'm that useful in this area of service. Uh, what if I don't do well? What if I can't accomplish the tax given to me? What if, what if? Listen, fear paralyzes us from trusting God to use us. And Jesus laments over that kind of attitude. And then I know I'm not trusting God if I am discouraged to use my God-given gift. Uh, this is when a person's like, I'm no good, man. I can't be used of God. I tried that one time. I failed. God can use someone else. There's no power from God in that kind of attitude because there's a lack of trust in God. And this is one I deal with personally. I feel like I've grown in this area tremendously, but uh, there uh, were times when I began preaching uh, to start off with. And I'm just going to tell you all this because I told the first service it ain't in my notes, so, but it is free. Y'all listening say yes. But uh, there were times I would get up to preach, and uh, it would be a Sunday morning, so I'd get up and I'd preach my heart out. And, man, I'd be sweating and ranting and raving and encouraging people to be saved, and nobody would get saved. I'd go home and get in the bed. I'd be so depressed. So and it's like the enemy would just crawl up on me with discouragement and begin to say, what are you doing up there shouting so loud, telling people to get saved? Nobody's listening to you. Nobody's paying attention to you. And, man, I would wrestle that mess all afternoon. All I'd want to do is go to sleep. Now, I had a problem. Y'all all right? First of all, I can't save nobody. I just didn't realize that. God himself is the one who saves. Uh, the victory is in the presenting. Uh, God's glory is in the saving. And so we just present it. But, man, I was all warped, misled in my thinking. I'm like, nobody got saved because I didn't do a good job. <laughs> That's all jacked up. Y'all all right? It's backwards, man. And God laments over that. And so I grow uh, in that. I uh, often have to continue to fight discouragement uh, in my life. And it always seems to crawl up on me after I preach. Sometimes it'll crawl up on me while I'm in Sunday school. I just got finished preaching the first service, and I go to Sunday school, and it'll crawl up on me. Krista comes in. She'll sit next to me, and that's my wife. She'll be like, how'd it go this morning? I don't know, man. I don't even think anybody paid attention. What? <laughs> Amen. I don't know what that was. Hey, y'all know them lights are bleaking over there, right? Blow them up, brother. If we're going to do it, let's do it right, man. Let them go. <laughs> I start up, I can start doing this little move right here. And then blinking lights, that'll look cool. <laughs> hey, we have got uh, a whole bunch of new wiring in here, so we're working through some kinks. <laughs> Thank you, James. Give it up for James as he head back to his seat. <laughs> Saves the day. There's another reason I know I'm not trusting God. I know I'm not trusting God if I'm not only discouraged to use my gift, but I know I'm not trusting God if I am self-motivated to use my gift. Uh, and God-given gift. Those who are self-motivated to serve within the body are always wanting credit for their service. 
So they're like, I wish somebody would recognize what I'm doing. I wish someone would say something positive about our ministry. Nobody ever recognizes what I do or acts like they even care about what I do. Self-motivated service does not experience the glory come down. Jesus mourns over that kind of attitude. And hey, if you aren't recognized now for what you're doing within the body of Christ, be joyful. God is keeping a record, and he will heap rewards on you in the end. See, God has gifted you to serve. Therefore, just believe God to use you however he deems necessary. Exercise your God-given gifts within the body, trusting completely in him to use you, and you will receive power from on high to bring light into the darkness. But the warning from this text to all of us is that we would be on guard for unbelief in our hearts. Scripture states, as I mentioned, the Lord could do no miracles in his own hometown because of their unbelief. I don't know about you, but I would much rather experience the glory of God instead of experiencing his lamenting and his mourning over us. So there's another thing that would cause Jesus to lament over our fellowship. And that is, Jesus will mourn or lament over concord if we are trying to exercise God-given gifts without prayer and fasting. In Mark 9, we read where Jesus told his disciples the reason they couldn't cast out this devil was because this kind, quote, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So the reason the nine disciples could not cast out this devil was because they did not pray. This is the perverted mind. This is them being misled in their thinking. They tried to use their God-given gifts while shirking their devotion to God the Father. They were warped. In other words, they tried to do ministry without the Lord. In Matthew's gospel, we see the phrase added prayer and fasting. Could you imagine what it would be like uh, to be involved in ministry Uh, Working on behalf of the Lord, but not pray, not be devoted to God. That is all warped. That's perverted in thinking. Could you imagine what it would be like if I sought to preach the word without prayer? I don't want to think what it would be like behind a pulpit uh, without the knowledge of God's presence with me. Man, I want to be kind of like Moses. It's like, if if you're going to go up, if I'm going to go up here, you're going to have to go with me. You know, I read this once, and it made me want to seek the Lord's power in preaching. I know this is all kind of personal stuff, but just hang with me here. Um, But listen to this quote here from an article I read. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, y'all ever heard of him? Uh, Great preacher. When Jonathan Edwards preached from the thought, sinners in the hands of an angry God, a man ran down the aisle and cried, Mr. Edwards, have mercy. And then others caught hold of the backs of their pews for fear they would plunge into hell Some caught hold of the pillows in New England church where he preached this great sermon. And what brought this about? The article goes on and says, For three days Jonathan Edwards had not eaten a mouthful of food, and for three days he had not closed his eyes in sleep, and over and over he prayed, Lord, give me New England. Lord, give me New England. And it was said by those present that when he walked up to the pulpit that day, he looked like he had been looking into the face of God, and great conviction fell on the congregation. You know, it's the heart of uh, this pastor, it's the heart of this staff, uh, that we not only would be involved in ministry, but man, that we would be involved in ministry, praying and really seeking the Lord, asking Him to move. It's also the heart of this staff to see every member in the body serving the Lord, using their God-given gifts in the power of the Holy Spirit. But this happens only when we strive together in prayer. You know, I'm reading a book currently about uh, prayer, talking about 
really crying out to the Lord. And the book is kind of unique. It's uh, encouraging uh, believers to cry out to God. And he does a word study on cry out and talks about how it means to shout with a loud voice, to shriek, to moan, to lift up your voice. It means to be loud. And all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we find people who are shouting out to God. I mean, they are crying out to the Lord. I mean, I'm reading that book, and man, conviction falls on me. I'm like, how often do I cry out to God? How often do I really? I mean, I'm just shouting out to the Lord. And think of only a few times. Did I even get greater conviction on my heart when I began to think about the churches uh, that we're a part of? How often do the churches get together and cry out to God? Lifting up their voices to the Lord. It's like, lift up your voice? We're Baptists. So? That's what's all ridiculous, all right? We lay things aside because we, we're, we're Baptists. The Bible says you can cry out to God. And what's wild is that many people will not cry out to God because they haven't gotten desperate enough. They're not like this father who's like, I can't do anything, Jesus. I need you. That's where we all need to be. Talking with somebody... Uh, earlier. The sermons always grow. Y'all all right? Second service. God bless y'all. But talking with somebody uh, after the earlier service and they're uh, wondering and asking questions about why in the world it seems that God just works so mightily in third world countries. Uh, one reason I believe is just flat out because they do not have anything else to depend on. But we think we got it going on, man. We can figure it out. We flat miss God because of it. So it's like, cry out to God. We can't get people to lead in silent prayer around here. <laughs> Y'all listening? It's like, cry out to Yeah, cry out to him. Without this, we stand to hear the same ringing indictment of Jesus, you unbelieving and perverse generation. How long shall I put, be with you and put up with you? You ever had, and I had this many times, where my mom or my dad, they'd be looking at me and be like, well, I've had it up to here with you. Y'all ever seen this before? It's always right there, too, man, right above the eyebrow. So they can just come down and smack you in the face. But anyway, so it's like, I've had it up to here. And that's pretty much what Jesus is saying. It's like, man, I've had it up to here with you people. And I begin to think, Lord, I pray I don't live in such a way that you look at me and it's like, how long I got to put up with you? Or, man, could you imagine the Lord looking at our church going, how long I got to put up with y'all people? So in closing, just add one quick remark here. Uh, not only do we not want Jesus to lament over our fellowship, but also we don't want God's word to be hidden from us. We don't want God's word to be hidden from us. Y'all agree we actually want to get together and hear from God? Uh, after Jesus healed the boy, everyone was amazed at the presence and the greatness of God. However, something else happened in the text as Jesus speaks to his disciples. Look at verse 44. The Bible says, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But notice this next section. But they did not understand this statement. And watch this. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the statement. So the truth of what was going to happen to Jesus was concealed from them. Jesus was trying to talk about his crucifixion, but it was hidden from them. And the verb tense in this statement means that the disciples were acted upon by someone else. And the truth of what Jesus was sharing was concealed. It was made secret. It was hidden from them so that, and that's the reason, so that they would not understand it. And I can't help but see this as God the Father's discipline of the disciples for their lack of faith. You know, in Brazil, I had the opportunity to teach through the uh, minor prophets of the Old Testament. Look at me. Don't put your stuff up yet. I ain't done. Look at me. I'm preaching through the prophets of the, uh, in the Old Testament. 
And one old boy's name's Amos. He's a, a cowboy. I love Amos. He's a cowboy from Judah. And God calls him to leave Judah and go prophesy to Israel. And so that's what he does. He goes and he shouts to Israel and basically talks about how God's fixing to bring the boom down on them. Y'all listening? And then the Bible says this, Amos speaking. He's like, thus saith the Lord, I'm about to send a famine to your land. Not a famine of water, not a famine of food, but a famine of my word. People will go to the north, they'll go to the east. They will stumble over one another looking for my word, but they will not find it. Why in the world would God do this to his people? It's because of their unbelief, because of their perversion. It is a discipline of God to send a famine of his word. And so here in this text, I am fearful because these individual disciples on this occasion lack faith in the Lord. And as a result, this word from Christ did not come into their hearts. It would be a shame for God to send a famine of his word to this fellowship. And I'll just kind of close it like this, and I just kind of wrote it in my notes. But what fear strikes this preacher's heart when I think that a lack of faith in God could keep his power from working in our midst. But equally, I fear that our lack of faith will keep us from understanding how God can truly use his people at Concord. That is, we are kept from understanding what he's doing in our midst. Let us not be a church that would cause the Lord Jesus to actually lament and mourn over us. You know, as you follow uh, the life and ministry of Jesus through the New Testament, you'll find he runs into people and he's amazed at their faith. So he laments over our lack of faith, but when he shows and sees somebody who's got great faith, he's like, check this out. I've not seen anybody like this in all of Israel with such great faith. And that person he's talking about was a Gentile. And so my prayer is that the Lord would look over Concord, this fellowship, and not lament and weep and be like, how long i got to put up with you people? But instead, he would look at us and say, look at that faith. I haven't seen anything like that in all of Georgia. And when he sees a place like that, listen, that's when he's like, I'm going to get down on that church. Glory's coming. That's where it's at. And then we leave and we're like, what y'all do at church today? We met with God. That's what we did. <laughs> Y'all all right? It'd be much better saying that than saying, well, we sang some songs and heard the preacher blab for 30 minutes, chatted up. I don't know what he's talking about. Hey, just for free, and I didn't say this for first service, look at me eyeball to eyeball. This is huge right here. Some of you have been coming to church and you're like, I don't ever get anything out of that. Hey, it's probably because God sent a famine of his word to your heart. It's discipline. And he does it. Why in the world would you have a famine of the word sent to you because God's trying to put a great desire a longing in your life that you do not have now he's like I'll take it away from him. hey you don't know you're hungry until you ain't got no food so some of you are like I come to church I don't get nothing out of it man I just go in there and sleep <laughs> famine the only way to get it back man is to repent <laughs> well let's pray father um, your word is heavy this morning